the gurus gathered at a remote retreat in Canada. They were there to harness the energy and ideas needed to spark a revolution. To get into the mindset, they banged tom-toms until the point of exhaustion. I joined them as an interloping journalist. This was a bunch of oil men and innovators brought together by BP, the fossil fuel giant, to dream up the new technologies that would shift the company beyond petroleum. Despite the clean air and hippie vibe, the revolution fell short that day and has ever since. Now, the drumbeat of a new clean tech revolution is intensifying, but the first energy crisis of the climate transition is unfolding at the same time. Taken together, oil, coal, and gas prices have nearly doubled since May. Investment in renewable energy is falling far short of what's needed for the great energy transition. Can finance really fix the planet? I'm Vijay Vaidiswaran, Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor at The Economist. And I'm the host of To a Lesser Degree. In this series, we take a clear-eyed look at the people, the politics, and the technologies needed to avert extreme climate change. In this episode, we'll look at what role finance can play in steering economies towards a low-carbon future in the midst of an energy shock. Britain, host of next month's Global Climate Summit, has turned its coal-fired power stations back on. American petrol prices have hit $3 a gallon. China and India are enduring painful blackouts. Can investors provide incentives and put capital in place to decarbonize the world quickly enough? We'll hear from Hawaii, where a climate tech revolution is being financed by venture capital, and ask Tarek Fancy, who ran sustainable investments at the world's biggest asset management company, whether environmental investing makes any difference at all. Joining me once again are Katrin Brahik, Environment Editor at The Economist, and our Briefings Editor, Oliver Morton. Hi, Vijay. Hi, Vijay. So, Ollie, Kat, there's plenty of money in the world, though not necessarily in my pay packet, and yet money doesn't seem to be solving the climate crisis, at least not yet. What role should finance play in tackling climate change? Well, there are two things that I think are crucial here. One is that climate change is largely an infrastructure problem, so you need to find steady sources of finance to build all the new kit that acting on climate change requires. But the other thing you need to finance for is innovation, because you need to be able to do some things that people cannot currently do in order to get the best response to climate change. And that's where you get into this whole clean tech venture universe that people are talking about a lot. And some of us who are old enough saw a boom in clean tech in venture capital in the 2000s and saw it not go anywhere. But there's very much another wave of it at the moment. So that first clean tech boom, and you don't have to be that old to remember it. It was hardly 10 or 12 years ago. It didn't really pan out, did it, Ollie? For a lot of the venture capitalists, most of them lost a packet. Most of the companies that started went bust. In many ways, this was a disaster. What lesson can we learn from what happened in the past? I think the big lesson is that the venture capital model works pretty well for software, but it definitely doesn't work for things that it was being applied to in the 2000s, such as trying to make cellulosic ethanol refineries, making very big things that cost hundreds of millions of dollars straight off the bat. That's absolutely not where the Silicon Valley model of innovation really adds benefit. 
So if that's one of the lessons from last time, how is this current boom, which sometimes is referred to as the climate tech boom, as opposed to the disgraced clean tech boom from last time, what's different that suggests it might actually be more successful? Well, I think the world is in a very different place. We're now seeing the impacts of climate change in a way that we haven't before. The politics, in part as a result of that, are in a very different place. The signals that governments are sending are much clearer. And as a result of that, the direction that businesses need to go in future is much clearer. And and therefore, where the money should flow is also clearer. And then, of course, the, the other big reason is Tesla. It's a Silicon Valley type startup, which has produced a radically new company and has done a huge amount to make electric cars into a thing, which does something really important for the climate. So why has Tesla been so successful? Uh, What lessons do you think we can learn from that? I think the real thing is that Tesla made electric cars cool and desirable. It said electric cars are the focus of this company and we're going to start with very sexy ones and very expensive ones and we're going to build out. And that was a brilliant way to do it. So I agree with that. I also see a bit of a problem in that, in that Tesla because it was cars specifically, made green venture seem very fast and sexy in a way that not all green venture will be, right? So a classic example of this is heat pumps. These are essentially air conditioners that work in reverse. So they extract heat energy from either the ground outside your house or the air outside your house and pump that into your home. We need to obliterate the model that we have predominantly here in the UK, where All houses are heated with gas boilers, and the government wants us to install heat pumps that are powered by renewable energy, but they're not sexy. Well, I don't think Silicon Valley only works for the sexy and snazzy, and I agree that making people say, God, I want that heat pump, uh, is going to be a little bit difficult. But at the same time, it is good at thinking of things that can make money that other people haven't thought of, and actually compared to cellulose ethanol refineries, heat pumps have the advantage that you can innovate with them. They're not absolutely huge. And if the government really wants to increase the number of heat pumps in a country, then there's a lot of opportunity out there for finding ways to make people want heat pumps. Well, let me be the contrarian at this party here. First of all, I think heat pumps are getting a terrible reputation on this show. I recently toured a brand new condominium development, high-end luxury, the tallest building in one of the boroughs in Queens outside Manhattan. And they showed off their heat pumps that are installed in every building as part of their smart homes that have Google thermostats and other cool kit. Were they very sexy, VJ? Give it a chance. Give it a chance. Uh, But the other thing I want to say is that, in fact, while we are lavishing praise on Tesla and the Silicon Valley model and the dynamic founder entrepreneur model, let us remember that Tesla also benefited from government regulation that is in the form of California's environmental regulations, loads of government subsidies in the form of credits for people who bought their cars, as well as subsidies from the government to buy a factory at really a tuppence. And so without that kind of contextual support, you would not have had the rugged individualist storyline of Silicon Valley making a success out of it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It didn't come from nowhere. And the government wisely helped it along in various different ways. That doesn't mean it wasn't a success. And it doesn't mean it's not a model for financing in the future. So, Ollie, do you think the climate tech revolution can really play a big enough role in slowing the climate crisis? I think the new technologies can definitely play a big role. Whether they'll all come from the green climate tech revolution or by other mechanisms, I think is an empirical question. I certainly think that ways of encouraging 
venture capital to look at these would be very welcome. Personally, I'm not a strict techno-optimist. I believe in technology, but I don't think it's the be-all and end-all. And I think there are certainly a lot of things that are not Tesla-like, that are not sexy and snazzy, and that are going to be absolutely required in order to achieve a complete or near-complete decarbonization of the economy. Well, what I take away from this robust discussion is we should all run out and get heat pumps. (laughs) Now, next, let's have a look at a real-world example of clean tech funding. A climate tech revolution is taking off in response to the threat of a warming world, producing thousands of innovative new companies. Companies like Heliogen. Heliogen's technology can not only replace fossil fuels, but also transform sunlight into fuels. We call these heliofuels. Heliogen is a solar power company backed by Bill Gates. It's expected to go public later this year in a deal worth $2 billion. All these companies are trying in some way to emulate the success of Tesla. None of these firms would have got off the ground without initial funding. Somebody had to pay the bills and help take the technology from an idea to a reality. And that's where angels, venture capitalists, incubators, accelerators, and other financial backers come in the picture. I'm Don Lippert. I'm the founder and CEO of Elemental Accelerator. And we're a global climate technology investor and nonprofit impact organization. Don Lippert's Hawaii-based outfit looks for climate tech companies that have proven themselves at a small scale and need funding to reach a wider marketplace. We were actually at Elemental, the first organization to try and deploy the accelerator model for climate technologies. We've been doing this for about 10 years now. And over those 10 years have evaluated over 5,000 companies um, and invested in 117 startups to date. And all of these startups are focused on redesigning systems at the root of climate change. And this summer, out of all of those investments, we celebrated our 20th exit. So the companies are growing and making really significant impact in communities around the world. It's big business. The International Energy Agency calculates that new patents related to green technologies like batteries, hydrogen, smart grids, and carbon capture are far outpacing those in technologies like fossil fuels. The challenge is finding the technologies that are ready to scale and will have a genuine impact on global carbon output, given a nudge in the right direction. We invest in for-profit companies, but for impact first, because that's how they can grow their environmental impact. We're helping companies permit the projects, find the customers, develop community partnerships for the projects, find the workforce and the contractors to get things in the ground and then decide what success looks like from that actual project. More than 4,000 miles away from America's Rust Belt, Hawaii may seem like an unlikely center for an energy revolution. The thing that brought me to Hawaii around 2007, 2008, was the fact that Hawaii was over 90% dependent on oil for all of its energy needs. And so at that time, half of the oil used for power generation in the United States was used in Hawaii. Electricity there costs about three times what it does on the mainland. So there was sort of this vision of, you know, could Hawaii actually flip the economy from fossil fuels to clean, do so in a way that brings down costs for people who live here, um, as well as reduces emissions and creates somewhat of a model for other places who are trying to do this transition later. And so that's really what has played out. We're now over 30 percent renewable energy in Hawaii. 
the shift toward renewables represented an opportunity for one of the startups backed by Elemental back in 2009. STEM delivers and operates smart battery storage solutions for commercial customers, independent power producers, and utilities. The core of STEM's technology is an artificial intelligence platform called Athena. Tad Glopier is the vice president of market development for STEM. The old adage is the sun doesn't shine at night, the wind doesn't blow all the time, and we need energy storage in order to smooth out the renewable fuel sources that will replace fossil fuels. Athena uses machine learning to make predictions about what's going to happen, both at an individual site and also across the grid more broadly. STEM was able to test its battery software in Hawaii. As a proving ground for new technologies that depend on clean energy, it's a fantastic place. You've got multiple small island grids in Hawaii. They recognized that energy storage was the next wave. The company set up on the islands to optimize Hawaii's small grids, but other grids were looking on. Shortly after doing that first one megawatt project in Hawaii, STEM won the largest contract at the time for distributed energy storage in the world uh, with Southern California Edison. STEM has moved beyond these proving ground states of California and Hawaii, and we're across the U.S. We've gone international. And in April, STEM became the first publicly traded pure play energy storage company. Hawaii is appealing for climate tech investment because it's a small market. Elemental Accelerator can deal directly with local governments to set up trial projects quickly. Don Lippert also wants to see these successes move beyond Hawaii. The real question was, Could we take the things that we were learning initially in Hawaii and on the ground in this community and apply them much more broadly? Electrifying airplanes is a pretty difficult challenge. We're taking a practical approach, upgrading existing planes with electric vehicle systems. Kevin Nordker is the co-founder and CEO of Ampere, a company that builds hybrid electric airplanes. It means that they're able to fly today a lot sooner than most people would have expected. We, in 2020, delivered a hybrid electric plane to Mokalele Airlines and and flew some of their routes there on the Hawaiian Islands. Incredibly exciting. These were the first hybrid electric commercial routes ever flown, and now they're expanding further. We deployed a plane out to Scotland and up to the Orkney Islands in Scotland, as well as in Exeter, the southwest of England, just earlier this year. Ampere's planes are adapted from Cessna models, small propeller-driven short-haul aircraft. So the emissions reduction potential is, for now at least, limited. Can we fly the longest routes and the biggest planes that are currently flown? With today's technology, we're not able to do that. But the only way we'll get to that future technology someday is by proving it where it does work today and then working to scale it up progressively over time. Ampere was acquired as part of a $100 million deal this February by Surf Air Mobility. There's clearly more money going towards climate tech companies these days. But is it enough? Don Lippert remains optimistic. There's not yet enough money available to make our full climate transition. Analyses show that we need probably over $2 trillion a year to make this transition happen. Even philanthropy is still in low single-digit percentages of, of dollars that are coming into climate and specifically addressing climate. I feel really optimistic that we will ramp up the level of capital we need, but we're not there yet. Investing in climate tech companies isn't the only way that finance can be harnessed to help with the climate crisis. 
We'll hear more about other approaches after the break. But first, a reminder that if you're not already an Economist subscriber, you can get the best offer by heading to economist.com slash climate pod. The new issue takes a look at the first global crisis of the clean energy transition. Economist.com slash climate pod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. How else could finance help decarbonize the planet? Sustainable investing is often touted as the answer. In the corporate world, it's known as ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. It's a way to measure how responsible a company is. Investors who want to use their assets for good can weight their portfolios towards ESG companies. John Brown, the former chief executive of BP, put sustainable business at the top of the investor agenda in 1997. He was the first oil executive to say publicly that fossil fuels were causing climate change and that his company had a responsibility to act. I believe we've come to an important moment in our consideration of the environment. We need to go beyond analysis and to seek solutions and to take action. Though he initially encountered resistance from big oil, Lord Brown's speech eventually pushed other fossil fuel firms to make similar pledges to decarbonize their businesses. Meanwhile, investment managers have promised to steer money towards companies that are doing good, including a multi-billion dollar climate tech investment fund launched recently that is headed by Lord Brown himself. We hear the noise, but we're focused on action. It's a nice idea, but how much impact does it have on the crucial work of decarbonization? Tarek Fancy ran sustainable investing at BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager. He quit two years ago after becoming disillusioned with the job. He's now an outspoken critic of ESG. Today's being done in a way that promises that there's social impact in some way, shape, or form being created that is actually not being created. And in addition to arguably being a bit dishonest to the public about how it operates, it's actually creating a giant societal placebo where it's distracting us from the actual tools and mechanisms and capitalism that can create the kind of change we need at the timeline we need it done. The key challenge that I found was that the entire win-win approach is predicated on an idea that ESG is useful to investing. It's neutral or positive to returns. First of all, it's important to note that that is a proxy for saying that responsible or good companies are more profitable because of the fact that they're responsible. The second thing to note is that the industry has to say that that's the case. Otherwise, you cannot incorporate ESG factors into your investing because of the limits of fiduciary duty. Isn't there a fallacy in your thinking, just to push the argument a little bit, that is, rather than saying it's a static environment in which green companies or sustainable companies will be more profitable for investors, in fact, ESG and related kinds of trends are really a bet on future regulation, that it is an anticipation that society's evolving expectations on issues like climate will lead to carbon regulation, carbon pricing, and therefore companies that get good at doing things in a low carbon way are first movers and they'll be more innovative and they'll therefore outperform the laggards. Isn't that the real argument in favor of ESG? That's the core argument that I think people argue in favor of. And it's one that I personally believed in going into BlackRock. The challenge is that when you go across a large asset manager on Wall Street, you find that in practice, the majority of the investment strategies are very short-term in nature. 
And so the idea that a company is more profitable over the long term because they're better prepared for the shifts related to ESG, which include not just regulation, but you know consumer preferences, that all is a great thesis, but it tends to work only on one side of the spectrum of long-term, private, illiquid type investments of a sort that firms like BlackRock and, and other ones have. But it's important to note that the majority of their capital are in more liquid strategies. For those strategies, it was far from clear that ESG was that helpful because, you know, I remember talking to portfolio managers and they said, listen, I agree, climate change is really important, but I'm investing in, you know, senior debt or bonds and I have a short term hold period and it just frankly doesn't matter. Challenge number two is that the way the narrative around ESG is being sold to the public it's arguing to people that companies are going to do this all by themselves. And so actually these theses undermine the political foundation upon which you would build regulation. So in a sense, the market will solve our problems. We don't need big government is the concern. That is fundamentally the problem with ESG investing as it is today, right? The idea behind it is ultimately one that the market will self-correct. Isn't that a bit of a caricature? There's nobody serious that argues that laissez-faire solutions will solve a problem like climate. We have the UN's COP26 summit coming up that's about as big global government as you can get. Major economies around the world are implementing or proposing very significant carbon regulations. So nobody is actually claiming that ESG money by itself and market forces are going to solve the problem. I think if you actually look at the theses being pushed out by business leaders around the fact that ESG leads to better returns, which is something I saw firsthand trying to integrate it across the largest asset manager in history is not true. And you look at the related ideas around stakeholder capitalism. You know, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, said this year that I prefer capitalists self-regulate, right? They're saying both things. On one side, they're saying, no, no, we need government regulation, but at every turn, their lobbying efforts, their marketing efforts seem to be reflexively anti-taxes and regulation. And if you tell people that you can buy a low-carbon ETF or you market to them and say that these oil companies are suddenly green, that in and of itself lowers the likelihood that they're going to argue for government action. And frankly, if you sell people a pipe dream that they can buy a low-carbon ETF and fight climate change at the same time, no one is going to choose the answer that has the word tax in it, right? Because there's this alluring idea that we can fight climate change without having to pay for it. Now, you mentioned oil companies. You know, we saw the recent ExxonMobil shareholder meeting where we did see an activist hedge fund supported by lots of ESG investors, big ones, pull off a revolution in a sense in corporate governance. So we saw three activist directors nominated at a major US company. It's very rare for that to happen mm -hmm. on a climate agenda. Doesn't that suggest there is a market response and that ESG money can help? It's far from clear to me that that's going to have the impact that people seem to think that it will. Ultimately, the fundamental problem we have is that the economic system is created as a chain of transactions which are governed by the idea of fiduciary duty, right? Because of the principal agent problem, there are people who are investing or spending money on someone else's behalf. They are legally required for the most part to focus on dollar value, not social values. And you have at the end of it, a market failure where it's clearly cheaper to burn fossil fuels than we need for it to be as a society because we're not taxing the cost of the pollution. In that situation, it's not clear to me how putting new directors onto the board of an oil company changes much. So if I'm an investor and I'm concerned about climate change, should I invest in something else instead? If it's not in ESG branded funds, 
where do I put my money if I want to do some good for the climate? If you want to do some good for the climate, the best thing you can do is invest in a long-term private vehicle that's providing primary fresh funding to innovators who are building the solutions we need for the climate crisis. So think of a climate tech VC. The simple reason is that that kind of fund can make the promise around additionality or the idea that by investing in it, you're creating some impact in the world that would not have otherwise occurred. You are skeptical about ESG as a trend, but you do have some hope that aspects of finance, for example, investment funds that look for climate tech innovations can make a positive difference on climate. Am I right? Absolutely. I wouldn't throw out ESG entirely. I would say that the way it's being done today is actively harmful. Why? Because it has no positive impact for the most part. I actually did it so I can tell you there's very little impact. And if you look at how they're constructed, there's no reason to believe that there would be. And on the second point, there's clear evidence that these win-win fantasies are alluring. Of course they are, but they're alluring in a way that they delay action that we need because no one actually wants to roll up our sleeves and do the hard work to pay for the change we need if they're being sold a thesis that they can kind of have their cake and eat it too. So we've just heard from Tarek Fancy about environmental, social, and governance issues. And I want to get your views on the topic. Like Tarek, do you think ESG can't do what it promises? Or are you a bit more optimistic? It seems to me that it's a bit of a box-ticking exercise. And based on that, I do wonder if it's going to achieve what it has set out to achieve. And then there's also the fact that there's a huge amount of greenwashing in one of our own reports from earlier this year demonstrated that. So our colleague Guy Scriven did an analysis of the world's 20 biggest ESG funds. And it found that on average, each of them had investments in 17 fossil fuel producers. Six had investments in ExxonMobil, which is America's biggest oil firm. Two had stakes in Saudi Aramco. And one fund had investments in Chinese mining companies. You have to sort of raise an eyebrow, I guess. I think it's true that some ESG funding is trying to make a difference, and I can salute that. My worry is not dissimilar from Kat's, but it's that ESG is an incredibly broad term, environmental, social, governance. I really want companies to reduce their carbon emissions. I think there is a certain sense of dilution when you're treating climate as just an environmental issue and a whole troika of good stuff stuff, where for me, climate matters in a way the other stuff doesn't. Next year, we're going to see tighter regulation of corporate claims of greenery, like the so-called net zero carbon policies we hear from companies all the time these days. And we're also going to see more bottom-up pressure on companies via different kinds of accreditation schemes promoted by the United Nations and other organizations. Do you think this is going to help? On the one hand, it depends on tightening the bolts and making sure that you don't get the greenwashing that we're looking at. But on the other hand, it's, it's also importantly down to the quality of the data, the quality of the measurement, the amount of transparency that you have around these schemes, and also whether or not you can measure the things that they're claiming that they can measure. And my worry about companies going net zero is that I want the economy to go net zero, and I don't want it purely to be left to companies doing good stuff. I mean, large companies doing good things, don't get me wrong, that's a significant contribution. But at some level, you need to be systemic about these things. And putting the burden on individual companies doesn't seem to me to get the right balance between what's individual and what's systemic. So can I throw this out to a wider question then? And that's whether the capitalist system 
entirely built to basically reward growth is compatible with the realization that we live on a finite planet with finite resources. The problem, I would argue, is that we're rewarding actions in the marketplace that don't take account of the depletion of natural capital, as it's called, yeah. that is the resources that you're talking about. And there has been a long-standing school of economics and accounting that argues for reform of how we measure GDP, how we reward companies in the marketplace, how we hold CEOs accountable. That includes taking stock of these sorts of intangibles and tangible natural resources. And so I think if we account for nature properly on our balance sheets, companies can be rewarded for being good stewards of nature into the long term. The real solution, I think, is not to rail against capitalism, but to fix it. I think the rules can be fixed through the United Nations, through international accounting bodies, for example, through a domestic action in countries like the United States. We are headed in the right direction. And carbon price is a really important part of that. Given the enormous challenges or possibly even the impossibility of creating a global price on carbon, of linking up all of these individual markets that we've got, how likely is it that the system can be reformed in the way that you're talking about and to the scale that is required to have a measurable impact on the climate? You could take a view that it's never going to happen. It's impossible. That's how people thought about free trade. People thought decades ago that it would be impossible to achieve something like the global free trade agreements that the World Trade Organization, the WTO, was able to achieve. But year after year, decade after decade, countries met in something known as the gap round of negotiations. There was a lot of banging their heads against the wall, but they made progress. And the progress happened sometimes with bilateral or regional deals. Sometimes coalitions of the willing agreed, that is countries that were willing to go further ahead, sometimes sector by sector. In other words, you can make progress. It is worth doing. And as a veteran of these COP meetings, all three of us, we know we've seen it firsthand. It has been a very long time of banging your head against the wall at these UN summits. And 25 years ago, someone could have said it's never going to happen. And yet here we are with something tangible actually happening. I think this is how progress happens. It's not going to happen from the top down in an ideal way. It'll be messy, bottom up, but we're headed in the right direction. And yet still, as we all know, there is not enough progress. That's true, Ollie. Your wise observation about the limits of ESG probably can be extended to the energy transition. We need to do much more and much more quickly on decarbonization if we're going to be serious about taking on climate change. But the question still remains, can finance save the planet? Today's climate tech revolution is a lot more promising than the failed clean tech revolution of a decade earlier and much more financially viable. But the main reason for that is not that it has attracted a lot more money. If anything, we need 10 to 100 fold more money to come into this area. The main reason to be optimistic about finance taking on climate change is that governments are finally getting serious about providing the right incentives and long-term framework for capitalists to profit through clean rather than dirty investments. Now, it's that time again in the show where we try and pull ourselves out of the quagmire of bad news that seems to dominate discussions of climate change and turn to something encouraging. So what have you got for us, guys? Well, I have something that might count as good news, but given the conversation we've just been having, it might not. But I'm willing to give it a go. Sure, go ahead. Okay, so I saw some news that corporate bosses in the UK are finding that their remuneration is increasingly linked to hitting their ESG goals. And even though we have just demonstrated we have various problems with ESG goals, it's surely better if the bosses are facing in the same direction as everyone else. 
So is it a voluntary scheme? Is it a vo- what's, no? What's no, it's, going it, on? it's shareholders are requiring. Oh, so shareholders are. requiring. I assume. I mean, Sorry. presumably, remuneration committees within these companies. Right. Obviously, that sounds great, and also it is an indication that people are taking the challenge of climate change and the threat of climate change much more seriously. So definitely good news in that sense. It all, again, comes down to the data. During the previous enthusiasm for CSR, some of us will remember corporate social responsibility was all the fad some years ago. Oh, God, yes. Uh, And I can remember endless colorful brochures. I don't know how many millions of trees were felled to produce these CSR glossy brochures that came on my desk. There was no measurable increase in the sustainability of the companies themselves, but their pronouncements increased. And I slightly worry that given the very dubious nature of disclosures and measurement and metrics in this area, that we'll just have a cottage industry in making CEOs look good so that they get these ESG bonuses without actual change in the company's practices. It's true there is a lot of greenwashing, but we also have seen a massive increase already of the kind that you're talking about, right? We've seen a massive increase in the number of net zero declarations from companies left, right, and center. Some of those are absolute nonsense, but some of them actually have value. And I think it's not worth throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Right, Kat, you've you've struck on a point that we can all agree on with gusto. Let's not throw out any of the babies, just the bathwater. Thank you both very much. That's it for this week's episode. On next week's show, we'll look at the ways people will have to cope with climate change. The world is getting hotter. How well can human societies adapt to it? To a lesser degree was edited by Marguerite Howell, produced by Rory Galloway and Hannah Mourinho. The executive producer was John Shields, and the sound engineer was Evan Viola. I'm your host, Vijay Vaitiswaran, and I'll be back next week to put the most important and challenging ideas and people in the world of climate change in the hot seat. See you then. <laughs> <laughs>